I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co, I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where This week we have a very special Conversations of Inspiration. Not only is it our 50th episode, but it was recorded live at St Mary's Church in Marylebone, London, as part of the most incredible day in the small business calendar, the Congregation of Inspiration 2019. I was lucky enough to interview the legendary Rob Ryan for this most special episode. And special is exactly what it turned out to be. His intricate paper cuttings ignites huge joy and great passion within me. I've continued to follow and adore his work for over 20 years now, and I couldn't believe that I got lucky enough to hear his journey firsthand. We spoke about his childhood, how he discovered his talents at the RCA, to then, after a hard 20 years trying to make a living out of his art, the difficult decision he made to allow his art to be for the masses. His artwork has been featured in Vogue, Elle, Stylist. One Christmas, he created 28 Liberty Christmas windows. He's collaborated with Alex Munro, Tatty Devine and none other than Sir Paul Smith. And Rob's most recent work at the Brexit marches has inspired me all over again. Sitting with the light shining down on us through the stained glass windows as he told his story was one of the most spiritual moments on this business journey so far. Take a seat, Rob. Take a seat. Lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. Wow, I am... Oh my gosh, I'm such a fan. How am I going to get through this? I have no idea. We have been researching you, maybe stalking you, um, actually since the beginning of my career, entrepreneurial career. Um, My two co-founders, they can't cope even sitting in the front looking at you. Um, So thank you for making our dreams come true today. Um, So as we do with any podcast, we start right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I would first love to ask, growing up and discovering your passion for art, you were born in Cyprus. Can you tell us a little bit about what your upbringing was like? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Well, I'm not Greek, so I was only born in Cyprus because my father was in the uh, RAF. So I was conceived and born in Cyprus, and then we kind of left Cyprus and moved back to England. So I am, I'm English, you know, I'm Brit- English. British or whatever, but my parents are both Irish. My father joined the RAF when he came over from Ireland after doing his national service. And um, yeah, so I'm not, I, although I, 
I do love Cyprus, and I do go back, because I, I, we kind of got stationed there later on, so I do, you know, have memories of it. But uh, I do like it, and I do kind of feel, in a way, although I'm not related to it, in the sense of, um, you know, having any family there or any roots really there, I kind of have a funny connection with it in the sense that I feel as if... <laughs> you see, I left when I was about six weeks old, but I do have a kind of connection with it that my parents lived there for three years. And just before, you know, in the last year of them living there, I was conceived. And I kind of think of it as a happy time for my parents, you know. And oh, they were, nice you know, and I kind of think, well, though I didn't live there, it was sort of a great time of their great life. Great time of their life. Yeah, they were Irish people, then they were living in a nice country. But you know? your, your dad was in the <laughs> RAF, was that right? And, yeah. and how did that affect your childhood? Um, well, the very nature of being in, in the forces is you do tend to have to go where you're told to go. So, you know, you get posted from, from camp to camp, you know, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I suppose it affected my childhood in the sense that I did um, move around a lot, you know, and yeah. I did go to separate, you know, different schools, you know. I almost went to a school every year for... Um, every I would, year? Yeah, and, uh, and my two brothers actually were packed off to boarding school, but I wasn't. So in a way, I was kind of a bit of a lonely child as well, you know. Yeah. So I, I kind of think... Um, I kind of, it's, it's what you're used to as a kid. You, yeah, you, you accept it, you know. And I think later on in life, you think about it, and you think, oh, that must have been quite hard. And I guess it was hard, but at the same time, you think, well, that was all I knew, you know, so... And, and you, can you remember when your passion for art began? Were you a creative child? So you, you felt like an only child. Did that mean that you sort of um, embedded into creativity more because you were filling your time? Yeah, I think so. I, I definitely feel that I, um, I did definitely spend time on my own drawing. And funnily enough, my, my first drawings, I don't really have anything from my childhood. But I do have my mum's old prayer book. And when we were in, um, we used to go to church, she used to give me her prayer book to look at the pictures in it. And I remember you must have scribbled in them as well. But I do remember, I still have this prayer book. And I, it's quite, a, and, and she would look at the pictures to keep me quiet, you know. So there'd only be a, about 10 pictures in this prayer book every so-and-so pages. And I remember I looked at it recently, and they're horrific. There's like Jesus, I mean, I know I'm in a church and everything, but there's like Jesus on the cross and he's crucified with the nails going through the hands and everything like that. And I just thought, God, I was about three. And, but at the same time, oh all goodness. these very powerful images. Yes. And I was just kind of thinking recently, God, absorbing all those pictures and looking at them yeah. for quite a long time, you know, as a child, an what hour. Lovely, what a lovely thing you've kept, though, as mm. well, to all this time. Yeah. And you went then, um, obviously not straight away from then, but ultimately you ended up in art college. You first studied fine art at Trent Polytechnic, and then you went to the Royal College of Art in London, where you specialised in printmaking. What was this time like at the most prestigious art college in the world? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't want to kind of badmouth anybody. <laughs> but, no one's uh, listening. It's just a podcast. I know, I know. But I must admit, I did go to the Royal College, and um, you know, it's, it was it was at a time when um, MAs were three years. The, the MA was three yeah. years long, so yeah. it was like another degree, you know. And I do remember, I, I loved my uh, degree at Nottingham and I made great friends that I'm still with, friends with now, you know, that's what you do when you go yeah. to college to a certain extent. 
But I do remember going to the Royal College and I, it had been taken over by this guy called Jocelyn Stevens, who was the new rector, and he was the guy that was going to straighten it out. It was a bit of Thatcher, kind of, let's get this art college on the, back on the tracks financially and business-wise and everything like that. And I remember going to the, um, the first uh, induction meeting, where it was like this, everybody, everybody was, uh, was in the big hall and the rector was standing up. And I, remember, I distinctly remember him standing up going, you are the creme de la creme of the future of British art. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. And I thought, oh. I don't know. I, I just thought, you know, loads of my friends hadn't got in. I knew loads of brilliant people that were really good and they weren't there, you know. And I kind of was like, inside I was kind of groaning. And then I kind of looked to my left and kind of pulled the face kind of like, and then I looked to my right, and both people I decided we were like, <laughs> you know, it was like they were obviously really made up to be there. And I was like, oh God, have I made a mistake going here? But having said that, I did do lots of work, and I, it was good, and the technicians were fantastic. But the whole dream of it being the... The pinnacle. Yeah, to me, was always... I, I, I felt somehow that um, it was a place where some people went to kind of one stage further to kind of network and the beginning of their career. And I never saw it like that. I just thought, well, this is somewhere I'm just going to keep working. And I felt, um, I did work. That's what I did. I didn't kind yeah. of go there to... But you weren't there for the status of it? Not really, no. But so when you did, when did you... It's interesting to understand. When did you develop your style of paper cutting? And can you tell me the story of this style that now you're so renowned for? Where did it start? Can you remember? Yeah, I, I can. I mean, I, I, it's quite a big jump from what we just said from leaving college to then yes. doing something quite uh, slightly different to what I normally did. I, I guess I should explain that if anybody's familiar with my work, um, before... I started working just with paper and cutting paper up. My work, in essence, was, was pretty much the same as, you know, emotionally and, you know, the, the nature of it and what I, the things I said was essentially the same as, as, um, as how you might know it through paper cutting, except it was done more in painting and more in printmaking, you know. So um, I didn't kind of reinvent my work, so to speak. I just kind of started working in a different medium. Yeah, I... Um, you know, I was working in screen printing, which involved working with paper a lot anyway. And I've always worked with paper. Printing is mainly working with paper. And I kind of took it a step further and I kind of thought... Basically, I was doing these pictures which had a lot of uh, words in them. So I was, um, you know, writing these short phrases that became sentences and then they became whole stories. So if you can imagine, my work at this point was these kind of paintings which was literally words, with maybe one small right, picture okay. in the corner. And I, um, I thought, well, what am I doing? Am I, am I an artist still, or am I a poet, or, or whatever, you know? And, and now I kind of see work where all these banners and Bob and Robert Smith were, work, the words are the work and everything, but nobody was really doing it at that point. So I was having a slight crisis of identity about who I was. Anyway, I had this kind of book of paper cuts, and they were all this kind of Swiss... German-style paper cuts, where you take the paper and you fold it in half and then cut through it, and then you open it up and it's perfectly symmetrical on either side. And I realised if I did pictures within this style, I couldn't really use words in them because on the other half of the picture, they'd be back to front, you know. And um, 
So in a way, I was forcing a medium on myself that wouldn't let me use words. Right, I in see. The fa in fact, my mum, when she went to school in Ireland, was left-handed, and she always used to complain that the nuns... This is all getting very religious, and I'm in a church. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a bit of Christianity slagging off, and I don't mean to. <laughs> but um, that she always used to moan about how the nuns tied her hand behind her back, so she'd have to write with the right hand. Here's Ireland in the 30s, you know. And... Um, I guess in a way I was doing that to myself. I was, I was self, um, yeah, sabotaging my thing. Sabotaging. But eventually the words came back, and I worked out a way that I could kind of do. Well, let's do the take two a together. moment um, to look at your stunning work. Do so you draw, and then you cut these intricate pieces by hand, and some of it you sell as paper cuts, and the others as screen prints from the design. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Original so, pieces. And... Original pieces. That basically, what I've realised, and I think what everyone agrees with, is that your pieces evoke such strong feelings, and they're emotional. I feel emotions when I look at them, and there always seems to be a meaning behind everything. Your words are just as integral to the paper cut as your design. So you have these passions for words, as you've just said. Um, what was that moment like when you almost discovered that you could put words and design in one, you know, did you feel that it was constrained or do you feel like the words were beautifully picked and actually they had their place and there was no need for more? Well, if, you, if we kind of go back to when I was at art college, um, I was on a fine art course and fine art is fine art. It's basically three years, do what you like, knock yourself out. Yeah, and at the end of the three years, you'll have a degree show and then you've done your fine art course. So there's very few limitations on what you can do. You can literally do anything. And the course that I was on, as well as painting, sculpture, printmaking, there was performance art, there was photography, there was filmmaking. Right. There was, it realize. was a multimedia thing. Yeah. They had recording studios, a sound studio. You could do yeah. anything, yeah. you know, it was incredible. You could go to a guy and say, oh, well, I feel like making a film. And he was going, oh, there's camera, there's some film. Brilliant. Come back, you know. So within that kind of, um, that, that kind of, all of those different mediums, there were people working in narratives because they were telling stories and they were doing performances and telling stories and filmmaking. And I was dabbling in, in all of these things. And at the same time, I was thinking, well, I seem to like stories and I'll start putting them in my work. The thing is, though, is once you start putting work, words on, in a picture on a wall, there, it opens up this... Well, then it did in 1981, when I was at college, that it was kind of seen as a form of... Well, that's kind of cheating if you're putting words oh, in. Oh, I see. You're, just, um, yes, you're, so, you're writing what you should be drawing. Yeah, in a way, exactly. So, I mean, but at the same time, in a film, you know, if somebody's... If there's a voiceover in the film, the thoughts of someone in someone's yeah. head, some filmmakers consider that the kind of device. So why don't I just say what I feel and, and how I feel about things? And, um, and I decided that... You know, I didn't really want to kind of over-intellectualise my work. I thought I would just be quite straightforward, draw the way I wanted to do, draw the way that, uh, paint the way that suited me, and say the things that I wanted to say, and be quite simple about it, straightforward about it. I mean, my work is very straightforward, you know. It's, it's work that is so empathetic. We've talked a lot about empathy today and, um, and touches on struggles. You create very strong emotions with your customers because it's soulful. So you must have been through pain to be able to um, elicit such emotion through your art. You're empathetic and you're beautifully romantic too. <laughs> well, I, don't th I think I've had a really 
lucky life, really. I've never been ill, you know, and um, I mean, my mum died when I was fairly young, so that was, that was quite uh, painful when I was only 18, when I just went to art college. So, but I mean, I think what you have to be able to do as an artist is express the world by talking about who you are, but there's other dimensions to it as well. There's dimensions of who you want to be and how you want the world to be and how you want yourself to be. Or, and my work's a kind of complicated mishmash of that. I mean, I'm quite a neurotic person. I, my wife can't believe the level when I tell her about how much I overthink things. I, it's a nightmare, I really do. <laughs> Honestly, seriously. But um, my work, in a way, is almost an antidote to that for myself. You know, I do really make my work for me, initially as a response to my anxieties and my uh, neuroses. Uh, so a lot of the things that I'm saying, I'm really saying to myself, it's my own kind of form of therapy. And I guess the, if, it re, um, if people can relate to it and engage with it on a very emotional level, it's because they're going through the same thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so I, it's very pure because I'm just talking to myself. Self about something. But it's when you share a problem with somebody, how great do you feel? Yeah, you feel as if, oh my God, thank God it's not just and me. And isn't it funny, you do remember that every time. You think, well, yeah. that's what it feels like to share. Yeah. Doesn't it feel great? Well, a yeah. piece that really spoke to me, actually, was um, a design called Rootless Tree. Here it is for our audience to see. And for listeners at home, it's a silhouette of two figures, a man and a woman, both holding long tree stems and surrounded by very tall flowers bearing over them. There are strings pulled between the two branches with tiny words hanging off which say my tree never had any roots but it continues to grow nevertheless and I took it everywhere I went I carried it a mile after mile and then I saw you every word since then I've hung it on a string only to hold you close and it's totally beautiful. And I read this piece was inspired by your childhood. Can you tell me about this? And is it right that you met your wife at 18 years old at art college? <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. Um, I'm, one, I'm, I'm really glad that you picked this picture out because nobody's ever picked it out before. You know, you do loads and loads of work and you write loads of things down and they go off and you kind of forget about a lot of them. And oh. um, when you mentioned earlier that you were going to show this, I was actually really made up because... I kind of thought, wow, I, that is really, I remember doing this and I thought, that, I quite like this, but it kind of like, nobody really kind of uh, oh, clicked onto beautiful. it. So Absolutely one, that's stunning. brilliant. I think what, I'm really, what I was really saying, it's, I wrote this book years ago uh, called This Is For You, and it's really was, I was trying to express the, in an emotional form of how you feel inside yourself without uh, of the aloneness of being, uh, the aloneness of being just you inside yourself, you know, and how uh, meeting somebody that comes in and, sh and becomes part of you is, uh, is, it was this big desire that I had from a very early age, from maybe 11 or 12. And I'm not just talking about kind of puberty or fancying girls or whatever. It was a deeper thing where I knew that I, I, I needed somebody else. In your life? I really did. It was a desperate need. And when I did meet my wife, Lorna, uh, we were at, at, on foundation course when we were 18 and I guess in a way I got lucky, really lucky, because I kind of almost immediately met somebody who I saw a reflection of myself in, I, you know, in the, in, even though 
I traveled all over the world as a child and she lived, she lived in the same house she was born in. But I saw myself in her and I think she saw herself in me. And that picture, I guess, is about that feeling, about always wanting to meet somebody and, and, and let somebody in and, and holding on to them. And I mean, you know, I, we've had a, a, a long marriage and a long life together. But, um, and it's been kind of, you know, it's not the ultimate fairy story. We've had ups and downs and everything. But... Um, We've kind of hung on in there, you know. And, uh, oh, it's absolutely yeah. beautiful, and I Thank love you. hearing that story behind it. Thanks. Suddenly, in the early 2000s, you hit this level of fame that is so rare, really, for an artist, a small business, especially almost pre-social media. Your work was loved by all. What sparked this level of attention? Well, basically, what I was doing after I left college, I think it's really important for me to just mention to you guys that... Um, I didn't really make any money out of my art until I was past 40. So <laughs> in the period of being from t leaving art college at 23 or whatever, I didn't uh, get a job. I didn't, well, I didn't get a job job. I didn't go to art college and start teaching part-time as a lot of people did. I, I wanted to make my work. So I kind of um, got a studio and I funded my own work by, I worked, funnily enough, coming here today, I used to be a cycle courier two, two days a week, and I used to ride up and down these streets all day long in the wind <laughs> and the rain. And it was so funny. This was one of my big streets, Crawford Street. I used to do lots so you of knew work. exactly where you were coming knew, today. There was really no well. hope of you getting, uh, no, no chance of you getting lost at all. Yeah. So tell me about what sparked that thing. Well, so what, that, what, what was that moment? What sparked it really was, um, you know, up to that time, I'd been trying to get galleries. I had one way of doing, of, of making money. I would make work, it would go on a wall, and people would look at it, and they'd either buy it or they wouldn't. So, you know, I was doing as many part-time jobs as I could, manpower, all these sort of things, so I could go to the studio every day. So I'd work evenings, weekends, so I could do this thing, the thing I was supposed to be doing, the thing I was meant to do. And a friend of mine uh, was setting up a, uh, an agency called This Is Real Art, and basically, the concept of it was to take people like me, who were fine artists and didn't work in the commercial world, and introduce them to commercial clients and to see if uh, they could bring them into more the, commercial yes, projects commercial, rather the, than gallery yes, projects. the real world rather yeah. than in a, in yeah. a room. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, started, I signed up with them and I did a few jobs. And it coincided with me starting to do the... Paper kind of style. And I think what made it really click was nobody was working in paper. Nobody was working just in silhouette and cutting paper. There was a craft element to it that people loved. There was a kind of detail, fineness that people really loved. So I got lucky that I was a novelty. My medium was, was new. Yep. And also there was another side to it where it was... Then people would look at my work and... There was something in my work that went with that as well. So in a way, everything kind of lined up at the right time. And then I joined this agency. You know, I was introduced to Paul Smith. I did two big collections with him. I did Liberty's Christmas Windows. Was I that did... the moment? Well, I think a Liberty Christmas window must have been incredible for you. Well, it's there were 28 from... windows. It was an incredible oh job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a... 28 windows? Yeah. Like... Goodness. So, um, yeah, I mean, all of these happened in a year, you know, it was mental, like there was job after job after job just coming in. So, I mean, I, I, it was funny because imagine for years and years, I just sat in my yeah. studio making these pictures, uh, you know, 
getting a limited response from the world to them, but still trying and still trying to get them out there and organizing group shows with friends and, you know, whatever I could. And then all of a sudden, the world was interested. Yeah. So it was great. And I, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy collaborating with people. It, yeah. Well, I remember um, seeing an incredible paper cut, Rob Ryan Dress in Vogue. I think this was in 2008, and it blew me away. It was incredibly stunning. Please Google it, because it's very difficult to describe, but it's totally stunningly beautiful. So you started at this sort of time, didn't you, to see yourself, and I hear you said you saw yourself everywhere. Was this um, through franchising your design? Did, where did this go? And was it difficult making that decision too? As I know, so many artists and creatives struggle with this decision in terms of protecting their brand mm -hmm. and getting out there. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to talk to you about that because I think one of the things that we hold ourselves back is, it's a little bit like um, exiting a business. It's like frowned on. But you know, what are entrepreneurs meant to do? Oh, I'm doing it till I'm 90. But what are entrepreneurs meant to do? Just be there forever. And I think that also artists get a hard time um, with what is commercial, what is too commercial, um, and what is keeping and protecting your brand. And I'd love to touch on that. Okay. I mean, from doing no commercial work, within 18 months, I was doing 80% commercial work. Right. And 20% my own work. A massive shift. So uh, everybody wanted a kind of, everybody wanted some, wanted a piece of it. You know what I mean? It was, it was a style that was very popular almost very quickly. Uh, basically, what, it, what, what you can do is you could divide it into two different clients. You'll get people that will say, Rob, we love your work. We'd like you to do something for us. Do whatever you like. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. We trust you. We trust you. The other side is, and I don't want to be seen off as slagging, but I'm just trying to be honest to you, and it's the part do. of the That's story, the you know what I mean? Point. Being but really truthful. The other side of it is, as an art director, saying, okay, we want one of your birds up in one of your trees, and can you write one of your lovely things? Okay, send them a rough. Could you make the woman more sexy? And <laughs> it's not very Rob Ryan. Could you make it a bit more Rob Ryan? Um, <laughs> And that is that the other thing. The and, other then, and then it becomes a shopping list. Can you put a car in? And can you put <laughs> Our a, logo in. a sexy woman in the car? You know, literally, I'm not yeah. making this up. So eventually there comes a point when you've done a lot of that work and you're thinking, oh my God, this is a nightmare. This isn't what yeah. I want to do, you know. Uh, so you consciously have to rein it in. You know, you have to just start saying So can no. I ask, in those two camps that you just talked about, Right at the beginning, when probably you were more unexperienced in being commercial, let's say, did you go into, did you actually do some of these pieces where you needed to be more Rob Ryan? And did that then, that experience teach you, okay, there are these two camps and these are the two camps? Yeah, I mean, yeah. once you've agreed to do something, you're stuck with it and you yeah. have to do it. And the next time you do it, it's difficult to, it was difficult for me after so many years yeah. of nobody being interested having everybody being interested to say no to people because yes. it was a kind of it was a novelty and it yeah. was it was great to actually be making some money and all of that and then I had assistants and blah 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 but at the end of the day I felt as if I'd veered too far off you know yeah. and uh, but I just still couldn't say no and then literally one day I said no I'm not going to do this and it was, uh, and I was still, you know, I was had 
lots of people working for me, I had a huge turnover, and I literally thought, if I say no to, people, to somebody, yeah. the phone will never ring again. Yeah. And I literally didn't say no for that reason. Because I'm a, I'm a child, child of immigrants, you know? I have an immigrant mentality. Yeah. You just work as hard as you can. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just yes. be grateful for every Everything penny you, you make and everything, every sale you make, you know? And um, of course I said no, and the phone didn't stop ringing. And then I felt confident to keep saying no. And I made a conscious effort to turn it around from 80 to 20 to 20 to 80, where I still did work. And I got my kind but of... But you needed that courage, didn't you, to... Yeah. This year's Congregation of Inspiration was truly magical. It was everything and more that I could have expected. From the incredible speakers such as Fern Cotton to Charlie Gladstone to Dave Buonaguidi, a church full of 400 small businesses, full of energy, inspiration, creativity. It was just breathtaking. It really is now something that I utterly treasure. The outpouring of love on Instagram has just been humbling and I'm thrilled to read it being called the Met Ball of Small Businesses, the Disneyland for the business world, to the ultimate small business wedding. I'm honoured to not only create this event, but to then have the pleasure of meeting everyone who attends. It's one of my most favourite, favourite moments. And I am thrilled to say I have some very good news. Not only have we brought the general admission price down from this year, but we have just released our 2020 early bird tickets, which means if you came this year and would like to rebook or you'd like to come and experience this wonder of inspiration and advice for the first time, you now can. But hurry, as we only have a limited amount of early bird tickets, head to holly.co where you can buy your Congregation of Inspiration 2020 ticket now. So without further ado, this week's winner won their ad break at the Congregation of Inspiration, where they had to stand up in front of a church full of well-wishers and pitch for the NatWest Independent Ad Break Live. And I'm thrilled to say that the winner this week is Holly's Gin. Over to you. Hello, um, I'm Holly Harwood and I make gin. My gin is actually called Holly's Gin. Um, I started it last year. I actually did it with a crowdfunder um, for my first batch. I'm down in Cornwall. Um, it, <laughs> it took me two years to create the recipe in my kitchen in London when I was living here. Um, I was drinking tea, passion flower tea, because I was very stressed. So I decided to bung that in the still one day and it, it turned out really well. Um, I'm now on batch four and um, yeah, just absolutely loving it. It's been a real passion of mine for many years, but it took me a long time to have the confidence to do it. Um, on a personal level, I was suffering from depression and the, my business has actually completely changed my life and it's given me a real purpose. Um, if you want to find out more about my gin, it's in a lovely Art Deco green bottle um, and yeah, just visit www.hollysgin.com. Thank you very much. Awesome. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. You also have mentioned in past interviews that actually there was this thing of, I better get out there because people are copying me and your style was being imitated. 
How did you deal with that? Because I know in this room, there are so many people, it's one of the most upsetting things, and for anyone listening, being copied when what you do is you, is a nightmare. Tell me about that experience for you and how you've, is there any advice you can give to us listening about what you do in that situation, how you've come to terms with it or not? Okay. One, my style is, 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 is really easy to copy, you know what I mean? It's, it's quite flat, you know, there's, you know it's, it, it's fairly straightforward. Initially, the most important thing to say is it actually hurts. It's hurtful to see somebody open something and see something that you think is yours, and then you look again and go, no, that's not quite like mine, because initially you think it's yours. Right, okay. But then you go, oh, no, oh, no, it's not. And you generally think it's, it's like looking at yourself in the mirror, yes. but it's not you. Yeah. It's hurtful on a, in, initially. It's hurtful for me. It might not be hurtful, but I'll be walking no, off the duck's no, back. I you think know. it is hurtful for all so of us. Is that right? There, yeah. There, yeah. Is, there is that side to it. There's the other side to it as well, where you kind of think it's an injustice, you know what I mean? Um, a couple of, I did meet some people who were legal legal media legal people yep. and they said if you ever have a, you're going to have problems if give us a call when you do and i did do it a couple of times with some companies and even that's it's a nightmare it sucks your soul out of you it's horrible and even though you're 100 percent in the wrong and in the right sorry yeah <laughs> you're in the right they're in the wrong so you're 100 percent in the right you have to fight to prove it and it drains you, or it drained me. And we did it a couple of times, and it was like, I just can't do this anymore. And basically, the other thing that happened was there were people that were replicating my work so well, and they were so aggressively professional and commercial, they were, turning, they were getting all the jobs I was turning down. So the people right. would ring me, we've got a job for you, go and do it. Go down the list, Google pep cuts, would you do it? Oh, yeah, he did, they, they do a Rob Brown Rob, Rob, thing anyway. So they were actually getting, getting all of this work in my style. And I th genuinely believe that if I didn't do something about it, then they would, be, they would overtake me. They would be better known for a style that I was created than me. I would be left behind, and they would be the guy. Yeah, yeah. And there was no way you could fight anybody like this because it's almost impossible. And uh, I decided, somebody had been asking me for a long time if I would be interested in doing a licensing project with them. I'm sure you know what licensing is, when somebody makes your work up for you and sells it for you and you just design it. And they do everything, the distribution. And I agreed to it on the, on the um, promise that my work would be branded on all of the packaging. It would be really big Rob Ryan thing and it would go in the high street. And I think I had to kind of beat these people at their own game. I yeah. had to just put my name on everything. I said, let's do it. They were waiting for me to do it for years. And I just, okay, let's do it. And, yeah. you know, we branded it and it went into John Lewis and it went into TK Maxx and, well, whatever. So it was like, well, now have a go saying it's not, it, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. You yeah. have to fight you fire play, with fire. Yeah, you fight, yeah, exactly. It was you all like, and I didn't really want to do it because at the time I had a shop where I was making things in my studio with our little kiln and putting 20 mugs in the kiln and bringing them down to the shop. And I was really happy doing that. And I do that now still. I still yeah. 
produce things in my... So you were almost forced yeah. to, yes, as you said, to play them at their own game. Yeah, I had to kind of win on that level. So you have collaborated with so many wonderful businesses and brands, from our god that is Paul Smith to Alex Monroe, Tati Divine, Liberty, Fortnum & Mason, Midi Moderns. In fact, we have the wallpaper you created hanging behind our giant headphones, painstakingly hung, by the way, so please do get your picture there. I love, um, love all your collaborations, and I especially adored the one that you did with Tati Divine. Um, I know you're great, great friends um, with the founders, in fact, when researching, I read that you designed Harriet's wedding dress, and I had to show you all because it's purely magical. Um, it is so stunning, and the image on the right is a necklace from your collection with Tati Divine too. So how amazing, and I think it just shows you when collaborations can so work. Do you dream of having any more collaborations? I mean, you've already worked with Paul Smith, so that's probably pretty hard to top, but are there other dream collaborations that you would love to um, create? I feel as if I've kind of done that now, and I've kind of really, I'm happy. I feel as if I've done lots of that kind of work, and I'm open to doing it if, if something comes along that I'm interested in. But I really do want to concentrate on, on Right, doing more of my own work and writing better stories and doing more story-based work. But having said that, I would really like to do... You know when you go to the airport and you see all the planes on the thing and they've got this big painting, so I'd really like to do a big plane. Oh, a plane! OK, so that's... So you don't really want to do any collaborations except if it's someone like British Airways yeah. and we can have a whole plane. Yeah, can okay, I do so a plane? If anyone is listening from British Airways or any plane uh, companies, Rob is your man for that. But, but tell me, Rob, in those collaborations, you know, what was it like working with other creatives? What was it like when two people get together and you're collaborating? Because I think one of the things, you know, certainly Holly & Co stands for, um, the CO word, um, is community, but also collaboration. Because, mm -hmm. you know, here today and anyone listening, you know, sometimes we're better together and actually mm. we can create amazing things. Yeah. So can you just tell me about maybe a story within those collaborations or, or something about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a kind of a similar um, conversation with, with Harriet from Tacky Divine that was all about collaboration. And it was all so pro-collaboration and everyone standing up. And then it was kind of my turn to talk. And I went, well, of course, I've done lots of collaborations. And been great, but I do remember years ago when... I was trying to collaborate with people, say, let's do this, and you know, and you have to get lucky with collaborations and get someone that's really like you and wants to do the ex most excellent thing. The people I used to choose to collaborate with, so they'd rather go down the pub, you know what I mean? <laughs> and for years and years, I wasted lots of time trying to collaborate with people that weren't as into it as me. I'm sure yeah. we all have this feeling when, even when you're kids, you want to do something. You know, let's do this, let's build a den. And they're in, your mates are into it for half an hour and then they all drift off and play football. <laughs> what about the den? I'm going to build the den. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. but so I'm I think, quite enthusiastic I think you're really lucky if you get, I mean, Paul Smith is brilliant because he is the top of the company. And because he's brilliant, everybody in Paul, who works for him is brilliant. Right. And also, he's a good person. And all the people you meet at Paul Smith, they're all good really people. good people. And I'm not mentioning any names, but I work with people, and it's, it works the other way around as well. Yeah. It really uh, does. Absolutely. And that's how it is. You have to get the right people.
Well, you mentioned that you still love putting your mugs in the kiln. Um, you work from your studio in East London, where you have a small team helping you create all your beautiful work. But you also um, had a shop on Columbia Road, which you called Ryan Town, selling all your beautiful work. It was open seven and a half years, um, but you closed it in March 2016. Firstly, can you tell me what it's like to have a shop? I had two. I still have one. Um, we had to shut our shop only six months ago. What was the reason you wanted that physical space? Today, Charlie from um, Peddlers and the Good Life Experience talked and encouraged us to have physical space, make yeah. things physical. And then tell me what happened. Well, it was brilliant. I mean, I, a lot, like a lot of things that have happened to me, they've just kind of happened by chance. Somebody, I knew somebody, my framer, his... His partner lived above the shop. The shop became empty. Will you be interested in the shop? I went, no, I don't want a shop. And then I thought about it. I thought, okay, I'll have it for a year and see how it goes. Because we were making things in the studio anyway. So I had this idea that everything in the shop, in fact, it's awful. Because when we had the shop, my wife is a, is a textile artist and my PA at the time was making her own stuff at the weekends and the evenings, you know, creative. And when we got the shop, they both went, oh, great, we can put our stuff in the shop. And I went, it's not going to be quite like that, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Ryan Town. <laughs> because I want it to be one, and it was, they still are horrible to me about it. Can we let's put our stuff in your shop? And when you it would has, give us a shelf. I know, exactly. And I said, it has to be one thing. Everything in the small room is from my head. I mean, what form it's made of ceramic or fabric or whatever, it's all, it's from me. And where you want to go, you go to this one shop to get every, all the stuff from me. And they got, you know, they got it. Yeah. And in the end. In the end. Um, it was kind of brilliant because it's three streets away from my studio. And I remember it, it was only open Saturday, Sunday, because Columbia Road is dead on the week. Right, so it's yes. only two days a week. So the idea was that, you know, we'd make stuff that week. And it was almost like the idea of it almost was kind of like... Um, like a kind of a fresh produce shop, like a bakery yes. where you would go into the bakery and smell the bread. And I remember mm. we used to make ceramics and take them out of the kiln, carry them to the shop on Saturday. We'd take them out of the kiln Saturday morning yep. and put them on the shelf with the sun hot. hot. Oh my goodness. Still hot Amazing. from the kiln. And it was brilliant. Amazing. And it was literally, what's going to be in the shop this week? It's Wednesday. Come on, let's quickly do something. So we've got a new thing. Because we in the studio, completely on the means of production. I have a screen print studio, we had um, fabric printing, we had ceramic deckling, we had kilns, you know. We used to, everything we, used to, we made ourselves. So it was, we didn't have to wait for samples to be turned around. I would say, okay, we need, let's do some new tiles. Okay, I'll draw them, put them on screen, print them tomorrow, put them on the tiles, find them on Thursday, take them out Friday for Saturday or Saturday morning hot, whatever. So within, I could have the idea on Tuesday and on Saturday it'd be in the shop. It was, it was brilliant. But then I had to start doing other work and, and, and I mm. could only keep this up. I mean, the shop was open for nearly eight years. In that, the last five, three years of the shop, I did a trilogy of a story that took eight months of the year to do. And I did one every year. Yeah. And after a while, Cynthia, who ran my shop, she, was, she would ring me up again, have you got anything new for the shop? And I was like, I can't, I've got to do the fucking book, the book's got to be done, you know. <laughs> and they were going, we haven't had anything new for ages. And I went, I know, I'll try and do something. And I was just letting her down. And the dream of having 
this thing that was magical and incredible, it was beginning to fade. fade. And, and as such, you know, I thought it can either get worse and worse and worse, or I can just draw a line under it. So we, me and my wife, we talked about it for years. Should we keep the shop? And then eventually I said, I'm going to close the shop. Yeah. And as soon as I did, I was really relieved because that nagging fear yeah. that I wasn't doing it justice was gone. So you, you shut the shop and probably, yeah, as you said, relieved some, the tension and sort of your creativity. Something that's really caught my eye recently, and I'm wondering if um, that sort of newfound energy was um, helped you become almost more political. Because I've seen your posters, I don't know if this is you, on marches demonstrating against Brexit with these genius placards. Um, they stopped me in my tracks. And I remember seeing so many creative posters and signs. But your work was stunning. These posters were based on a paper cut with integral edging and a flock of birds flying in the sky holding a sign saying, let's be part of each other, which pretty much instantly sold out. Have you always been political with your work or is it something you're now moving more into? No, I mean, my work has always been about my feelings, even if they're just on a personal level, you know, um, I guess in a way, when you actually put the word Brexit on a picture, you're kind of nailing your colours to the wall. But um, I think before that, I did. There was a bit. There was a whole situation in London where nobody could afford to buy somewhere, and I mean, nobody could afford to rent studios anymore. It was so difficult. All my, I mean, I got really lucky. I had the money to buy my studio. And I lived in, uh, worked in this area where there were all people that I you know, went to college with all around me. And as the rents went higher and higher, this is in East London, or as the rents went higher and higher, they had to move. Mm. And now I'm still in my studio and it's lonely. There's nobody there around me. It's just people that have the money to buy and live in these workshops. And um, everyone's been priced out. So I, I did a piece about that, about letting people allowing people to live and and the only way that we will that will change is by legislation and i basically did a picture about you have to cap rents you can't have rents being the sky's the limit anymore because you're not letting people live yeah. you know so i yeah. did a piece about that and i you know i just felt so pissed off about it you know yeah. and the brexit thing i'm pissed off about it not even about brexit brexit's uh, a symptom for lots of other people's unhappiness about things. And when people ask me about, you know, what do you think about Britain being in the European Union and blah, 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 I say, I don't think we should even have countries anymore. You know, let alone fucking Britain or, you know, we should be gearing towards losing national identity. I mean, it's, to me, it's crazy. I just kind of, let's let, let go of that and let's join together. Maybe Europe will join with Africa and Asia and we'll just become this world where we try and make things happen, you know. We're living in this fucking global com communications and a global nightmare with, with you know, the climate yes. and everything that, you know, got to work together on, on the whole thing, you know. But, um, so it's a no-brainer for me to... to to, to Europe your, to be a thing. And to, and to use your art in this way. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, moving on, you've also written a lot of books in your time. And you've written seven books, is that right? 
That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just another thing to, to add um, to your days. Um, you most recently, um, one is called, I thought about it with my head and I felt it with my heart, but I made it with my hands, which features your artwork too. And we are lucky enough to be selling not only the book, but also an exclusive print that you have done for us with this. Did it yesterday. Did it yesterday <laughs> for us. How lucky are we? Still Unbelievable, wet. the nicest man you've ever, ever met had me on the phone for many a week now well not many a week and um, begging him and he agreed what made you want to go into writing books and how did this come about well I must admit I was one of those kind of weird kids that or weird adults that never stopped reading children's books you know I I just didn't stop I still do I still think that there's a simple way of telling a story within, you know, so many words and using pictures as well, that I think is almost the perfect medium, you know. Uh, when I started putting words in my work, it, it, it was initially just a word or two, then it became a sentence and then a phrase and then almost like a poem, a few lines, yes. and then paragraph. And as I said before, you know, about am I a writer or whatever, I, I, did, I do have an ambition, I do see myself as a storyteller, and I, when I did my first book that was more about a kind of an emotional feeling of being alone and everything, um, I kind of thought, right, I want to do another book now that's longer than that and more of a story. And I did that. And then after that, I did a book with Carolyn Duffy where I did her pictures. I did pictures for her words. And then I thought, well, I want to do any... So I did a, this kind of trilogy, you know. <laughs> so all of these books are about me trying to kind of improve my writing and make better stories and longer stories. Um, I don't know if that's me or not. I'm not sure if that's... I do kind of want to still write to... I'm working on some stories at the moment. So um, that's kind of what I'm into right now. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of this amazing chat, but before we go, um, I'm wondering if you've thought... We are, I asked you earlier if anyone has inspired you enough to mention them today that I might be able to interview on my podcast? Um, I kind of do have someone, but I don't know if he's the right person for you. I'm really, I mean, the thing that I'm into is what I'm really into. I'm, I'm really into um, the Scottish, um, I think you could call him a comedian, but, he, but I think he's just a genius writer, storyteller, a guy called Limmy. Okay. He's incredible. And I just think he's so talented and... Um, he does fantastic uh, improvisational stories, and they're all on YouTube. If you type in Limmy improv stories, he just sits and starts telling a story. And his imagination is unbelievable. He's a genius. Well, I'm going to YouTube, and then maybe, poor thing, he's yeah, going to get he's quite scary. He's going to get... <laughs> and so finally, um, we, um, we always ask on this interview if our businesses are like a roller coaster. Tell me, um, in a few sentences, what has been your greatest low within your career so far? Um, I was doing too much work, and I got pneumonia, and I got quite ill. And it was all from overwork and getting really run down from working too hard. And I think it was a kind of quite scary wake-up call that my body is only so strong to do so much work. And before, I always thought I could work all night, I can work all weekend, I can stay up all night. And, and then one day I realised I couldn't, you know. Yeah. My body had a limitation to what it could do. So that was a kind of a low point. And the low point also was people were ringing me up saying, can you do this for me? He's got pneumonia. 
could he just squeeze it in? <laughs> and it was... He can't breathe. It was kind of like that, yeah. And I really couldn't breathe. It was horrible. It was quite Gosh. terrifying. And tell me, conversely, on the other side, your greatest high. Actually, it's funny because it's a, just a small thing. But uh, <laughs> it's really ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I've lived in London for years and, you know, I've traveled on the tube and everything. And when I did the Liberty's Window, and it's quite early yes, in my career yeah. and everything like that, I went to Oxford Circus and it had been up and I'd kind of forgotten about it. It was up and I got off the tube and I went up and there's a really long escalator and I went up the escalator and I know this is really egotistical, <laughs> but um, on the escalator, all the, all the advertising things, all the way up and all the way down were my, was my work at the thing. And I was kind of like, Oh my God. <laughs> thing. So, You've it, made it. Yeah, but it was a kind of a thing. It was kind yeah. of like, it was kind of really, yeah, well, it was a nice thing. Yeah, when you struggled for 20 years not making money and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, to go on that escalator it's and see great, your work, Oxford that Circus is a It's a busy station and lots of people oh. go up and down it. So that was a sweet moment, you know. Well, Rob, thank you so much for being the most special guest. Um, I have wanted to meet you, as I said, for so long. We are huge, huge fans. I know I said that before. And you truly are the loveliest of men, honestly. Thank you so much for being so kind for me. And you know what I'm talking about, but thank you so, so My much. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to now um, hand over to you. This is a moment in the podcast where I don't know what you're going to say, but I've asked you to write a, a letter... <laughs> <laughs> to your younger self, everyone's favourite moment, our favourite moment, not always the guest's favourite moment, um, and write a letter to your younger self. Would you be able to read it yeah, for us? Yeah, I think I've got it. I put it in this pocket that I can't read. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I kind of took this quite seriously. And I thought, it's a bit like, oh God, I might ruin my future, like back to the future. <laughs> if I give too many clues about what happens, it might not happen. I don't really... So I really, it's not that good, actually. Oh. Okay. Dear young Rob, I don't know how young I am. It's just a general General youth. thing. I am the older you writing to you from the future. You are now 56, nearly 57. What about that? You made it. That's good news. That's a positive, isn't it? Yeah, You're still, you're alive still. That's good. I guess the whole point of this letter is to pass on some kind of wisdom and advice to you that I've picked up over the years. I told you that I'm older, but I'm definitely no wiser. I haven't got much for you. At 56, I'm afraid you're still pretty much the same person you are now. A bit neurotic, unsure of yourself, yet sometimes ridiculously confident. You still put your foot in it, trying to be funny or clever or both. Some of the advice I could give you, like, for example, don't be so worried about what people think of you, or even don't be so shy, try to be more confident, might be some help to you. But then again, that might stop you from being the person you are. Maybe obsessing about things and overthinking everything is what makes you, you. And the outcome of all the complications of what you are makes your art what it is. So there you are, 40 years of experience, no advice, no wisdom, no spoilers, except follow your instincts and try and do the right thing 
The end. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It wouldn't exist without them. And I know how many small businesses this podcast is actually helping. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering business owners. To make use of their free NatWest Business Hub, which is full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals, go to natwestbusinesshub.com. Also, have you heard of their incredible mission to help 400,000 more women start a business by 2025? To help female founders launch and scale their business, they have launched Back Her Business, a program which helps women prepare their business idea for crowdfunding. Now, here's the best bit. Most of the funding will come from the crowd, where NatWest has teamed up with Crowdfunder. But the bank will provide a top-up in funding and will be offering up to 50% of an individual's fundraising target, capped at £5,000, for certain successful projects. Yes, you heard right. You could win the ability to have the amount you raised, if £5,000 or under, matched by NatWest. I wish I'd had this opportunity available when I launched Not on the High Street or even Holly & Co. Head to natwestbackerbusiness.co.uk to find out more. Also, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. My mission is to help everyone build a business doing what they love. I've seen how happy founding a business based on your passions can make you, and I want everyone to have that fulfillment. Happiness is the new rich, and using your business as a force for good is the new way of doing commerce. So let's create a nation of happiness happy entrepreneurs that are changing the world for the better. Can I ask you a question? Might you help me on this mission? If you like what you've listened to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Thanks so much. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. You will find that all the things that I have said will come to when you are lying in your bed and if you want your friends to come then bring them